Wonderful. Let's give them another round of applause. That was great. Let's pray together, shall we? Father God, thank you this morning. Thank you for uh, the truths that we learned and heard, the truths that were sung. I thank you for uh, young hearts that are learning uh, about you and learning about um, your birth, and not just your birth, but learning about your mission on earth and how you fulfilled that all the way through up through the cross, resurrection, uh, into your ascension, and now into your exaltation where you, uh, your son sits at your right hand. And Father, I thank you this morning uh, that the truths of Christmas uh, we can remember uh, and hold precious in our heart um, because it is the good news of salvation to the world. So thank you for the reminder. I pray now you'd help us to study for just a few minutes in your word and do that well, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bible, take it out and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to spend just a few minutes uh, in the time we have left uh, to talk through uh, the coming of our Lord from this particular passage. If you were here with us last week, you heard me say that last week, today, and next Sunday, we're going to be taking one stanza from the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, each week, and we're going to work our way uh, through that. And so today we're on our second stanza. Now someone rightly pointed out to me this past week that the angels didn't actually sing this song. Uh, in Luke chapter 2 it says they said, uh, and so uh, that, that is true. Uh, every song has some artistic liberties that are taken, and so uh, we sing it, all right? So we say that they sang, uh, whether they said it or sang, the words are truthful regardless. Let me read for you what the second stanza of the hymn Hark the Herald Angels Sing says. It says this, and you're familiar with the hymn. It goes like this. Christ, the highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the favored one, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now, if you have your Bibles open, I want to read Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, and you're going to see out of those verses exactly where this hymn, this stanza came from uh, in this song. So follow along as I read Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now I want to compare those two. I want to compare the verses uh, to the hymn, all right? So the song said, late in time behold him come. These verses say, when the fullness of time had come. Okay, that's where, that's where it's coming together. The song says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. And you notice in these verses that we just read, it says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Okay, so we see this coming of Jesus, the incarnate deity, he's flesh now. And then the song says, glory to the newborn king. And in these verses we just read, twice in these verses, 
Paul references the law, which indicates some kind of a king and some kind of a kingdom. So here comes the glorious newborn king. So based on those comparisons, here are three questions that I want to ask and hopefully we'll answer this morning uh, from Galatians chapter 4. Number one is this. Why now? Why did Jesus come at the particular time that he came? Why didn't he come right after Adam and Eve sinned? Why didn't he come... Uh, mid-Old Testament, why did he choose to come at this particular time? That's the first question that we want to answer. The second question we want to answer is, what does it mean that Jesus was born under the law? What does it mean that you and I are born under the law? Uh, And the third question is, what is Paul talking about here when he says Jesus redeems those under the law? How does he accomplish that? What does that look like? Uh, that redemption, okay? So we want to try to answer those three questions. So the first question, again, is this. Why did Jesus arrive in a manger in Bethlehem when he did? Why why does Galatians 4 say, when the fullness of time had come? And what does the song mean when it says, late in time, behold him come? Well, I think to answer that timing question, we have to look really at the grand purposes of God in all of the Bible. And so it really starts way back in the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis 2. Why did God create all of creation? What was his purpose in creation? Well, his purpose was to bring himself glory. And God was most glorified when he brought into place this plan of redemption in which he could save a sinful and rebellious people uh, to himself from eternal punishment. And so we travel all the way back to the opening uh, opening book of the Bible to find the answer. If you recall back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created everything that was there. Six days, God created all of the universe. And at the end of the six days, he looks at all that he created and he said, this is very good. Creation, including man and woman, were in perfect harmony with himself. But then you get to Genesis chapter 3 and you see this devastating decision by Adam and Eve to disobey God. And when they did that, they plunged creation into sin. They ate from this tree, this forbidden fruit God said, don't eat of it, and they did it anyway. And so all of creation was cursed. God laid out a curse on Satan. He laid out a curse on man's work. He he laid out a curse on woman's childbearing. And in the middle of that curse, God says these words in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So in the very opening chapters of the Bible, God points forward to the day when an offspring will come that will ultimately defeat Satan. Now, between Genesis 3.15, when God utters those words, and when Jesus actually appears on the scene is a span of about 4,000 years. Why all that time? What's happening? Why so long before this Savior comes? Well, I think to answer that question, we should always turn 
to the famous painter Bob Ross. He can help us in times like this. You know the guy on, on PBS? He does all the paintings. He has the afro and that just calming voice as he's painting. If you ever watch him paint, it's kind of fascinating as you kind of watch his, his uh, painting because he's giving this commentary as he's going along. And one of the things that he'll say as he's painting is he'll say, I'm going to put a little color here. Then over here, I'm going to add this little color here. And then later, we're going to come back and, and I'm going to take this color and I'm going to put it on top of this. And as you kind of watch him, uh, you, you see that he, he puts these colors and it'll start off with one big bland color and then, then he'll add another one and, and he'll add another one. And all of a sudden, out of that painting emerges this beautiful tree or cloud or, or cabin or, or whatever it is. As he lays each additional layer of color, it doesn't really look like much to begin with. And at the end, when he's finished, there's this gorgeous picture that emerges. It's, it's this masterpiece. Now, if he would have thrown all those colors on there at once, you wouldn't have really seen it. Instead, it sort of emerges out of this time as he goes along. Such is the case with God. God, throughout the Old Testament, is, is painting his masterpiece. And you see in the Old Testament how God interacts with historical events and people. For example, uh, you see when he sends Joseph down to Egypt right before this great famine, and it results in the nation of Israel not only surviving, but really thriving. You see as God applies another stroke to the painting, this little Jewish girl named Esther, who ends up saving the Jews from inevitable death. You see God adding another stroke as he sends Naomi and Elimelech via famine into a foreign land where there they encounter Ruth. And they bring Ruth back with them, and Ruth meets Boaz and ends up becoming part of this uh, ancestry of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look at the lineage of Jesus, over and over and over, you see all these characters come in. It's God's painting. It's, it's, it's his coming together of this masterpiece as he brings it all there. And then you finally arrive at... 4 BC, which is when most scholars believe uh, Jesus was actually born. And you see all of these cultural events and circumstances coming together to provide this perfect environment for a Messiah to come. Let me just give you a few of these that were happening right around 4 BC. Idolatry had largely been eradicated from Israel at this point. In fact, they're longing for this Messiah. They're not really worshiping anything else. They're looking forward to this coming Messiah. Rome, as you know, had conquered and unified the world. And under Rome, there was Pa Romana, the, the peace of Rome. And, and they provided an environment uh, and a road system that all roads led back to Rome, which will eventually enable the spread of the gospel quite quickly. Uh, as, as Jesus comes onto the scene. Not, not only had Rome conquered militarily, but Greece had conquered culturally. Everybody had the same language. 
everybody knew Greek. Now, they all had their own specific dialects from where they're from, but everybody knew Greek. It was this universal language. And so it made communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to many people through one common language. And finally, when Rome would recruit their soldiers, they would recruit from every far-reaching province that they owned. They would bring them back to Rome train them there, and then they would send them back after their service back to their homeland. Well, when they came to Rome, eventually they're going to encounter the gospel because Paul goes there on his missionary journey, and that gospel gets taken literally to the ends of the earth by these Roman soldiers. You can see all of that coming together. This was the perfect time. Every prophecy of the Old Testament had been fulfilled about the coming Messiah. Every Thing was in place uh, for Rome and, and, and the cultural settings to enable the, the spread of the gospel. And it all culminates when the Virgin Mary comes and she gives birth to her firstborn son and she names him Jesus. It's God's masterpiece over time. Emerging from the canvas, we see this amazing picture. The verse says that God sent forth his son. Now, Notice that when he says that, that indicates what? The son was pre-existent. Jesus didn't come into being just when he showed up in the manger. Jesus always was. He was part of the Godhead. And so when God sent forth his son, he sent him on a mission. And that mission was to come into earth as a man. Come in, born of woman, born of flesh. Okay, so he took on flesh. And what was his mission? Well, the mission was told us way back in Genesis 3 in verse 15. His mission was to come in and to crush the head of Satan, to defeat Satan and sin and death. So Jesus comes in on a mission, and, and Galatians 4 says Jesus came in, and he came in under the law. That's interesting. If you were reading Galatians 4 for the very first time, depending if you were a Jew or a Gentile, you would have understood that a little bit differently. When Jesus came in under the law, if you were a Jew hearing that, you would have immediately thought, oh, the law of God, the law of Moses. And that is what he meant by that. Jesus came in under the law. Jesus came in as a Jew. He came in under all of the commands of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way down through the Psalms, all the way down through the prophets, all of that. Jesus came in under the law. So did every Jew before Jesus. Came in under the law. You know what the problem was? No Jew could keep the law. Every Jew, when he compared himself to the law, was found guilty. They failed miserably. Jesus is being born as a Jew under the law, he too would be obligated to follow the law exactly how it was outlined in the Old Testament. No exceptions would be made for Jesus. Now, if you were a Gentile and you heard being born under the law, Gentiles didn't have the law of God. What did they have? They had the law of their conscience. 
Because the law of God is written on the conscience of every single person. In Romans chapter 2, it tells us this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuses them. You know something? Every single person has a law. If you're a Jew, you have the law of God. If you're a Gentile, you have the law of your conscience. You know what the problem here is? Even Gentiles, with the law of their conscience, can't keep it. That's why thieves steal at night. That's why drug dealers do their drug dealing under the, the cloak of darkness and secrecy because they know it's wrong. Their conscience tells them it's wrong and yet they violate even the little bit of the law that they know that's written in their minds, right? So Jews have violated the law of God that was written for them. Gentiles violate the law of God in their conscience, written on their heart. They're guilty as well. That's why Paul can conclude in Romans 3 and 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jews fall short of the written word. Gentiles fall short of the, the word in their heart. They've all fallen short. We need a Savior, right? We need a Savior. So Jesus comes into the world born under the law to do what? To redeem those who were under the law. How did he do that? How did Jesus redeem those? Well, he came in as 100% God. Remember, he pre-existed with God. He's deity coming into earth, 100% God, and he takes on flesh. He's born of a woman, so he's 100% man. And so 100% God, 100% man come together in this perfect person named Jesus Christ. And Jesus did what neither any Jew before him or any Gentile before him could ever do he obeyed the law perfectly. He did it all exactly how God wanted him to do it. He demonstrated the character of God, which is what the law is. It's the character of God in written form. Jesus demonstrated and obeyed the character of God. Not one single time did ever Jesus ever give in to temptation. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, that, that was easy. He was God. Of course, he didn't give in to temptation. I would say it like this. He was man when he faced temptation. He faced it just like you and I. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus faced every temptation just like you and I faced temptation. In fact, I would even argue that Jesus' temptations were worse than ours. And why would I say that? Because sometimes when you and I face temptation, we give in, don't we? And just for a moment, just a fleeting moment, the pressure and intensity of that temptation subsides in just that second when we give in. For just a little bit, our temptations go away when we act on it in sin. Jesus' temptations, because he never gave in to them, only ever intensified. The pressure never came off of him. I think it just got harder and harder and harder as he went closer and closer to the cross. At the end of his life, Jesus did the unthinkable. He went to a cross 
for you and I, and he took our place. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, For our sake, he, that he is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. At the fullness of time, in the perfect timing of God, God accomplished his greatest stroke of his masterpiece when he sent Jesus into the world and Jesus accomplished with perfect obedience the will of the Father and went to a cross and there took the penalty for you and I. He satisfied the wrath of God that rests on the head of every unbeliever. And when he rose again, that he finished what God started way back in Genesis 3 and verse 15. He rose again and in so doing so, he crushed Satan. When you and I believe in Jesus Christ, when we by faith believe in this resurrected Lord and, and his work accomplished for us, we too then can be saved. It's our only way of being saved is to look to Jesus. And that brings tremendous glory to God because in believing on Jesus, God shows us forgiveness and mercy and grace and love, all these things that we sing about at Christmas time. It is absolutely beautiful. And so we celebrate Jesus not just because he showed up in a manger, but it's because he was born under the law to redeem us from the law that once condemned us. And now because we believe on him, not only are we out from under that condemnation, but we're actually adopted into his family. We become a son or daughter of the Most High. And now we're part of that kingdom of Jesus. Now we live under a new law, the law of Christ. And he gives us his spirit to help us to live that. Uh, as we seek to obey him. And so when you celebrate Christmas over these next few weeks and you hear that hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, now you're going to know a little bit about what those phrases mean as you go through there. So here's, here's the stanza again. It goes like this. Christ, by highest heaven adored. They all loved him, right? Christ, the everlasting Lord. He never he never came into being. He was always in being. He's everlasting. Late in time, behold him come. It's the perfect time when he arrives here on earth. Offspring of the favored one is the son of God the Father. He's veiled in flesh. Godhead see, he, he's a baby. Hail the incarnate deity, right? Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. A king was born under the law who redeems us from the law so that we can be part of a new kingdom, the kingdom of, of Jesus Christ, and his righteousness is applied to our lives. Amen, amen. That's why we sing those hymns, because they mean so much. That's why we celebrate Christmas, uh, because of all of these truths. I'm going to close this in prayer. When I'm done uh, praying, uh, I just want you to stay seated. Uh, watch a short uh, music video. It's about six minutes long. It describes these verses that we just read in Galatians chapter 4. And when that video is over, you're dismissed to go and enjoy the rest of your day. Okay? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for these truths that we learn from Galatians 4. Thank you that at just the right time, in the fullness of time, when you had everything planned exactly the way you wanted it, all of the Old Testament was fulfilled. 
All of the uh, means of the spread of the gospel were in place. Everything came to its point as Jesus Christ now leaves the splendor of heaven and steps into creation. Not just to stand there, but for a mission. He comes to, to crush the head of Satan, and he does so by being born under the law and fulfilling that law. Every jot and tittle, he says, nothing will go away. I'm here to fulfill the law, and, and Jesus did that, and he walked where we walked. Jesus faced every temptation that we face. And God, we look at our lives and we face a lot of temptation. Jesus faced every single one. He never sinned. He never gave in. And now, Father, we see this son live that out and then head to the cross where he dealt the death blow to Satan, to death, to sin. We see Jesus uh, on Easter Sunday morning raise again from the dead and, and, and we see the fulfillment of, of Genesis 3.15 way back there where you said, Satan, my son's going to crush your head. He does it. And then we see Jesus ascend to your right hand and there he sits. And so today, as we think about this Christmas holiday that's coming up, we rejoice because of this miraculous masterpiece that you painted in all of Scripture. And we know that the best is yet to come. We know that one day Jesus is going to come back. We look forward to that day when all things will be made straight and forever and ever and ever will glorify you and magnify you with the angels that started the song when Jesus appeared the first time. And we finish the song as we stand around your throne giving you praises forever. Forever and ever we'll praise you for the lamb that was slain. Father, thank you for this wonderful time of year. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.